Let's open our Bibles to Titus chapter 2. Titus chapter 2, and then we'll cover verses 12 through 14 tonight. The Scriptures consistently stress the absolute responsibility of every believer in the Lord Jesus Christ to learn the truth of the Word of God and to live consistently with it. That's so self-evident that I'm afraid that some tune out those words when they're spoken. Uh, That's a shame, but it's true. George Orwell once said, We have now sunk to the depth where a restatement of the obvious is the first duty of intelligent men. But that is obvious. I assure you it's not my intention to insult your intelligence or your level of spiritual maturity tonight by telling you again that the believer's creed should be doctrine learned and doctrine lived. Doctrine learned and doctrine lived. James makes this crystal clear in his epistle when he says, But prove yourselves doers of the word and not merely hearers who delude themselves. It's bad enough to be conned by someone else. It's downright embarrassing to delude oneself. What is more important, to learn the word or to do it? The answer, of course, is both. They go together. God never intended for us even to ask that question. Great problems are created when believers give priority to one or the other, to either learning or doing. There have always been believers who are satisfied with learning and not doing, and inevitably they find themselves unfulfilled in their own spiritual lives. But just as disturbing are those who attempt to do without knowing. These dear folks are attempting to navigate this present life by feeling. It's good and proper to feel, but navigating the Christian life by feel alone leads to shipwreck of titanic proportions. Frankly, I suspect a slothful soul lies at the root of both of those extremes. Slothful means lazy, in case you were wondering. The poles of learning without doing and doing without learning have weakened the church to the point where a new barbarian is outside the gates. The emerging church movement has appeared in part because the learning without doing crowd, produces such a cold orthodoxy that few people with a heart want anything to do with it. And the doing without learning bunch can't think their way out of a grocery sack and are utterly unable to defend the faith either intellectually or emotionally. So now we are faced with a new new challenge, and it's called the emerging church. Some of you have heard of it. I've mentioned it before. Some of you have not. The emerging church is openly and proudly and unapologetically postmodern. They do not believe in objective reality. And while some might say they believe in truth, they don't believe in objective truth. They certainly don't believe in in absolute truth. Therefore, this new group openly ridicules the preaching and teaching of propositional revelation from the Scriptures. They openly ridicule it. Narrative is fine. Storytelling is fine. Getting around in a circle and everybody uh, telling a story of Lazarus and the rich man or, or the good Samaritan and everybody giving their opinion is fine. But to state there is a correct opinion, 
That's ridicule. To state there's a right and a wrong opinion, that is ridicule. Their ultimate objective, they contend, is to evangelize postmodern young people. And that's a good thing. It's, it's always, there's always, way back in the back of these movements, for many of the people that are involved in them, there's always a good motivation somewhere. And it is a good motivation to minister and want postmodern people to receive the gospel. But their method, it's their method that is problematic. Their method blurs the distinction between Protestantism and Roman Catholicism. It also urges a return to the church's roots of medieval Roman Catholic mysticism. Their leaders, while calling themselves evangelicals, cross themselves with the sign of the cross, meditate rather than pray, and advocate a return to the Roman idea of Christ's literal presence in the bread at the Eucharist. They bless the bread, as the Roman Catholic priest did. They place it in front of the congregation, and then the congregation comes and worships the bread, as though Christ were literally present in the bread. It's a return to Roman Catholic mysticism. A man by the name of Brian McLaren is at the front of this movement, but there are other names like Leonard Sweet and Dan Kimball that will soon become very well known. Kimball's book, entitled The Emerging Church, Vintage Christianity for New Generations, won the 2004, 2004 Christianity Today Book Award. And it included a forward and an endorsement from Rick Warren, the author of The Purpose Driven Church and The Purpose Driven Life. If you wondered where the secret church movement was going to go next, now you know. And it's all in the name of evangelism. I agree. I totally agree that we need to reach this postmodern generation for Christ. But I do not believe for one minute that we should become postmodern in order to do it. There is a difference. Jesus Christ never became a prostitute to minister to prostitutes. You don't have to become a drug user to minister to drug user, to give the gospel to a drug user. Perhaps, yes, maybe you need to understand their vocabulary. Then maybe you need to understand wh where their thinking is. But you don't become a drug user in order to minister to drug users. You don't become postmodern in your thinking in order to minister to the postmodern mind. You don't jettison everything you know to be true, or even the idea that absolute truth exists, or that it can be known in order to, min to minister to a... Postmodern. Postmodernism may have a few positive aspects. That's debated at the scholarly level in our universities. But at its core, it is evil and it is destructive because it denies, at its core, regardless of what some would like to say, it denies the existence of objective reality and absolute truth. Our Lord desires that all men be saved. But, again, he did not become a sinner in order to save sinners. He had sin imputed to him. He had sin imputed to him, but he never became sinful. There is the distinction. Kimball, Warren, and McLaren have become postmodern 
in order to minister to postmodern to postmodern thinkers, and that is an apostasy. There's no way around that. And with all due apologies, if you are a fan of uh, 40 Days of Purpose and the Purpose Driven Life, I'm sure it did some good. But I never I never trusted that. You don't learn the Bible in, in 40 days. You don't even get a start in 40 days. I saw a tape just last weekend that said, learn the Bible in 24 hours. I was intrigued by the title. I almost bought it to, to see how you could do that. Now, I, I assume the authors intended for you to have an overview, the, the, what they call the meta-narrative of the Bible, everything from Genesis to Revelation. I can do that in 24 hours. But we have, you talk about being a microwave society. In the Greek text, as in the New American Standard, in Titus chapter 2, verses 11 through 14, in this Greek text, it is all one sentence. It's a complicated sentence, to be sure, but it is one sentence. It is one uh, thought process. Uh, the apostle says, For the grace of God has appeared, bringing salvation to all men, instructing us to deny ungodliness and worldly desires, and to live sensibly, righteously, and godly in the present age, looking for the blessed hope and the appearing of the glory of our great God and Savior, Christ Jesus, who gave himself for us, that he might redeem us from every lawless deed and purify for himself a people for his own possession, zealous for good deeds. Last week we studied the truth that God desires all men to be, all men to be saved and, and made salvation universally available. The death of Christ on the cross renders all men savable, but saves no one until the individual receives that gift at the moment of faith. Before salvation, the unbeliever is dead, according to Paul, in their trespasses, plural, and sins, plural. Sometime when discussing this issue, we emphasize the fact that the only reason a person is ever said to go to hell is the rejection of Christ as Savior, and that's true. But it does not mean that all sins are forgiven the unbeliever except the rejection of Christ. That's never stated in the Scriptures. Let me illustrate this way. Suppose a man commits a murder, is arrested, tried, and found guilty, and sentenced to die for that murder. But at the last minute, the governor decides to offer that man a pardon. However, in his rebellion of soul, he refuses the pardon, and then the execution is carried out. We might ask, was that man... Executed. Did that man die because he committed a murder or because he refused the pardon? Well, it's both. I mean, ultimately he died because he refused the offer of the pardon, but he was guilty in the first place because he had committed the murder. The grace of God, Paul says here in verses 11 through 14, the grace of God both motivates us and instructs us. Look at verse 12, and we get the word instructing there, instructing us, or perhaps to use a more modern-day term, discipling us. Um, that's taking a, a, a concept of discipleship and turning it into a verb, but if you like that, that's fine. The grace of God not only motivates us in verse 11, but also instructs us in verse 12, instructs us to deny ungodliness and worldly desires and to live sensibly, or on the other hand, to live sensibly, righteously, and godly, in this present age, when the Christian appreciates grace, it teaches. When the believer appreciates grace, it instructs. 
it's, it's not a, a given that every believer appreciates grace. Every if someone a present that you really put a lot of thought into, perhaps maybe even spent a lot of money on that, that maybe you didn't have. Maybe, maybe you gave it sacrificially. And then they responded poorly. You didn't care for that too much, did you? Not if you're normal. Not if you're human. I remember one time many, many years ago, uh, my mom gave her younger brother, much younger brother, he was closer to my age, uh, a, a shirt for birthday. And never forget this, you probably have, but, but, but he opened the shirt, he opened the package, looked at the shirt, which mom had very carefully selected, and, and made a vomiting uh, gesture. Ugh. Didn't go over real well with big sister. <laughs> In fact, I remember something about, uh, I'll never give him a present again. Uh, of course, she relented. <laughs> but you see, since it wasn't received, since it wasn't appreciated, that it was, it was something wrong with that picture. All of you, all of us are recipients of God's grace. God's riches at Christ's expense. We can talk, we can talk about it until we're blue in the face, but unless we really absorb that, unless we, begun to, we, we, we become to be appreciative of that, our spiritual lives are going nowhere. You can learn all the theology you want to learn. You can serve in all the soup kitchens, kitchens you want to serve in. You can set up all the chairs and take down all the chairs you want to set up. But until you understand grace, you are spiritually immature. And I mean that dogmatically. And until you not only understand it, but appreciate it, you will remain in spiritual infancy. The Apostle Paul was who he was because he not only understood grace, but he appreciated grace. He's called the Apostle of Grace. John's called the Apostle of Love. Paul's called the Apostle of Grace. You could flip-flop them. Both of them understood both concepts. But Paul understood grace. That's why he was such a great servant of the Lord. That's one of the reasons why he was so mature. So what does grace instruct us to do? Well, first, negatively, it is instructs us to deny ungodliness and worldly desires. Oh, boy. Oh, boy, the, there, is a, there is a cultural tsunami that's out there right now. It, it is a tidal wave, and it is seeking to just sweep Christians away. Listen, I don't blame McLaren and, and Warren and these other guys. I, it's not them. There's a much bigger power at work than these guys. These guys, I, I think at their core, they probably just want to evangelize people. But the desire to evangelize has been co-opted by the enemy, and these incredibly horrible methods have come in. And yes, method does matter. There's more than one method to get the job done, but not every method is spiritual. Don't ever buy into that. that see, that's postmodernism. That's what, that's what the, the, the emerging church is doing as opposed to the seeker church. The seeker church had a different method than the traditional church. Guitars and drums and, and casual clothing and uh, watered-down sermons. But it was a method, and they all followed it. In this new emerging church, any method's okay. So you may have an emerging church worship service where some of the people are, are listening to a homily, while at the same time people in the same room are off in a corner writing in a journal. This comes directly from one of their texts, by the way. I'm not making this up. Writing, writing in a journal. Other people may be back in the corner with a candle and, and with incense burning and, and, and involved in contemplative prayer. All in the same room. So you see, while the at least the secret church had a method and stuck to it. I didn't particularly care for their method, but at least they had a method. Here it's anything goes. It doesn't matter what the method is. I say no a million and a thousand times. No, no, no. 
I was watching TV late one night. Cindy loves it when I do this because I get real easy to get along with afterwards. Late at night, buzzing through the stations, and here comes punk rock Christian music. Now, you think you don't like rock and roll Christian music. Wait till you see punk rock Christian music. I love rock and roll, good rock and roll. I don't necessarily like the blend all the time of Christian music with rock and roll, but punk rock's another deal. There are some forms that are not good. Now, many, there are many more forms that are probably good than what I give them credit for. I'll admit that. But not every form is good. There are some things that we ought not to do. So grace is going to instruct us to deny ungodliness first. Ungodliness, or rather, let, let me back up and say from the positive, godliness is behavior that's consistent with the holiness of God. That's godliness. Ungodliness is behavior that's not consistent with the holiness of God. So the first thing grace teaches us to do is to behave consistently with the holiness of God and to deny that which is inconsistent. Makes sense, right? But it also teaches us to stand up against this cultural tidal wave that's coming our way. And listen, it's coming. I know it's more my responsibility than yours to know that it's coming. But I don't want you to get caught blindsided by it. Some of your children have already attended emerging churches in the, in the city of Houston. Some of your kids have. And if they haven't, they will. You know who they're going to market to? They're going to market to the 15 to 30-year-olds. Now, that lets a lot of us in this room out of it. But, it. but it doesn't mean you should be ignorant of it. They figure you're beyond helping. And you know why they figure you're beyond helping? It, it's because you have a pre-postmodern mindset. If you were born in 1963 or before in the United States... Then, then, then you, you at least had some of your youth in, in a, in a, with a framework that there was such a thing as right and wrong. But everybody born after that time, they went through elementary school and junior high and, and high school and college being bombarded with the idea that, that you're, a, you're a boor, you're a buffoon, if you, were, if you would dare make a dogmatic statement with regarding propositional truth. This is what they're fighting. We've got to stand up against it. And I told some people this last weekend, this last weekend up in, in Dallas, when some of this was being presented, even up there, that uh, it'll be over my dead body, over my dead body, that it happens here. Now that may happen. <laughs> you know, somebody may take a shot. I don't know. But 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 we cannot let this seep in through the cracks. It's not just a matter of listen. It's worshiping one way or worshiping another way. Remember, remember this, my beloved. The church at Rome is tired. They are sick and tired of Protestants evangelizing them. And they made a conscious effort several years back to, to have the flock return home to Rome. And, and it, was a, it was a reversal of the Protestant idea of evangelizing Catholic people. And so they said, we're going to bring people back into the real church, and we're going to evangelize Protestants. And this emerging church movement... Has, has as part of its offspring the evangelization of Protestantism or Protestants back into the Catholicism. The problem with that is, and that's not just method, is it? No, there's, there are serious doctrinal differences there as well. Serious gospel differences. So it instructs us negatively to avoid that, to, to, to put a shoulder to it. Remember, it's Jesus Christ's church. Just get on his side, you'll be all right. But we have to put a shoulder into it, so it instructs us what not to do, but it also instructs us what to do. To live sensibly, righteous and godly. Again, godly is consistent with 
the holiness of God, but to live sensibly. That's not in that's it's not an abundant supply nowadays. Common sense is anything but common. Now, in fact, the whole idea of, of Scottish common sense is ridiculed too by the postmoderns, by the this seeker or by this uh, emerging church movement. Sensibly means essentially self-controlled. It's kind of an inward characteristic. Righteously, morally upright. This is more outward behavior. And godly, which is in harmony with God's holy character in this age. Now, verse 13, what else should the grace of God cause us to do? Looking for the blessed hope and appearing of the glory of our great God and Savior, Jesus Christ. The blessed hope. This was one of Dr. Walbert's favorite phrases. Title of one of his books, you recall. I didn't know Dr. Walbert as well as Paul did, but I knew him fairly well. We, had, we were on the BBC radio one time together. Worldwide radio. It was, it was fun. I, they had interviewed him in one room, and then myself and Dr. Leitner and, and two other people were being interviewed in a, in a separate room. And, and I had sat down. I wouldn't at least been intimidated by being on the radio. But then when Dr. Walbert came and sat down next to me, he looked over and said, what's the matter? I said, nothing. He, he said, you, he said, you scared? And I said, well, I wasn't. <laughs> and he patted me on the leg and said, you'll do fine. And he was just a, a wonderful man. And he was so looking forward to the rapture of the church. In fact, his wife, Geraldine, told Paul that one of his, one of his regrets was that he didn't get to go through the rapture. He wasn't scared to die at all. In, in fact, uh, Harold Honer and I think Bob Leitner were both with him just a few hours before he passed away. Both reported that he was very calm. Uh, very peaceful, very serene. But boy, he was looking forward to this blessed hope. And that's one of the things that our understanding of the future should do for us. Grace leads us to that. One might wonder sometimes, why do you study the things of the future? Why do we care about eschatology? The eschatosis means last things. Why do we, study, why do we care about the study of things that haven't happened yet? Things that are going to happen in the future. Ever wondered that? Why do we teach courses in eschatology in seminary? A lot of people have ridden it like a hobby horse, and it's almost repulsive. They, they ride it so hard. That's all they ever study. But why would we pay attention to eschatology? I'll tell you the reason is this word right here. Hope. Comfort. It's because of, it's because of the fact that we know what's going to happen in the future, that we can live in our present circumstances today. And we can live... With comfort today. The blessed hope that's being spoken of here is, of course, the rapture of the church, and it motivates the sensitive Christian to honor God with our behavior now. The Greek verb here, looking for, is in the present tense, indicating that this waiting should be our characteristic attitude, always ready to welcome the returning Lord. We don't want to be ashamed when we meet him. And that's a possibility in 1 John chapter 2, verse 28, chapter 3, verse 3. The Apostle John makes that clear. It is possible for believers to be ashamed at his coming because we haven't lived our lives in the way that is described here. Denying those worldly things, denying ungodliness, yet living sensibly, righteously, and godly in the present age. In the Greek text, one article actually introduces both the blessed hope and the glorious appearing, suggesting that Paul is viewing this one event from two aspects. The blessed hope is the glorious appearing of our Lord and Savior. 
But there's more to it than that. It, it's not just an appearance. It's not just that he comes, but we go. If you look at the board, you, you've seen this chart a hundred times, but but the, the, the line pre-cross would, in, would represent Israel. The cross actually was specifically was on the day of Pentecost that the church age began, but we're represented by the cross there. We're presently in the church age, which is distinct from Israel. Charles Ryrie said that you could define a dispensation this way. A dispensation is a distinguishable economy in the outworking of God's purpose. There, is a, there's a there are distinguishing marks between Israel and the church. If you don't think so, Chuck Swindoll used to say, if, if you are not sacrificing animals, then you are a dispensationalist whether you want to admit it or not. Because that's a pretty big distinction. They had sacrifices we don't. They look forward to the cross, we look back. They're in the Mosaic Law, we're in the Law of Christ. Pretty distinct. The next prophetic event that the Scriptures mention is the resurrection or the rapture of the church. Same thing. Both the resurrection and the rapture of the church refer to the same event. First mention, the first mention of the rapture or the resurrection of the church comes in the Upper Room Discourse, John chapter 14, let not your hearts be troubled. You believe in God, believe also in me. In my Father's house are many mansions. If it were not so, I would have told you. And I go to prepare a place for you. And if I go, I will come again and receive you unto myself, that where I am there you may be also. First mention of the rapture in Scripture. Now, it's not a detailed mention. It's not detailed. The first mention is John chapter 14, 1 through 3. But the more central passage is 1 Thessalonians chapter 4, verses 16 and 17, where Paul describes what's going to happen. For the Lord himself shall descend from heaven with a shout, the voice of the archangel, with the trumpet of God, and the dead in Christ shall rise first. Then we who are alive and remain shall be caught up together with them in the clouds, and so shall we ever be with the Lord. I love the next verse, too. It says, therefore comfort one another. Therefore comfort one another with these words. There's a reason why we study eschatology. It's not just to make ourselves look smart. Not just to sell books. Not just so people are watch TV programs. The reason is so we can have hope. Now sometimes, I'll admit, I will be the first to admit, sometimes prophecy teachers don't point to the hope, they point to the problem. I'll admit that. And they get people all worked up without telling them, listen, this is something that's going to happen. All these horrible events are something that's going to happen down here. We're going to be up here in heaven when that happens. But we need to know that, that, that this all is going to work out okay. While this terrible, terrible time called the tribulation or the great tribulation is going on down here, we are at the judgment seat of Christ in heaven. Hope that's not a terrible time for you. Hope that's not something you're scared of. Hope you're looking forward to it. Now, if you've lived your life denying ungodliness and worldly desires, but on the other hand, living sensibly, righteously, and godly in the present age, you don't have anything to be concerned about. But, it, but if you've done the opposite, then maybe this is a period of terror for you. It ought not to be. It should never be for anyone. During the tribulation, though, this is the worst time in the history of the world, and the worst time, certainly, for the nation of Israel. All, all of, of Satan's forces are gathered up around Israel. And they all seek to destroy Israel. And right at the last minute, when all the armies of the world have Israel surrounded in a place called Armageddon, Jesus Christ comes back in his second advent. And you and I come with him. We're going to be here. We, we won't see this. We're, you know, we're never told to look for the Antichrist. In fact, Henry Thiessen says, Paul does not ask us to look for the tribulation, the Antichrist, 
or for persecution or martyrdom or for death, but for the return of Christ. If any of these events must precede the rapture, then how can we help looking for them rather than for the Lord's coming? Such a view of the coming Lord can at best induce only a general interest in the blessed hope. What he's, what he's trying to say is we're not to look for who the Antichrist is. It's a futile discussion anyway. You know why it's futile? Because the Antichrist is somebody that's obscure right now. The Antichrist is not going to rear his, his ugly head until after we're gone. And then after we're gone, all you fill in the blank breaks loose. It breaks loose in a terrible way. The seal judgments, the trumpet judgments, the bowl judgments. It, it is just horrible upon horrible. We won't be here to watch it. But one of the neat things that's going to happen, we pray from time to time, regularly actually, for the salvation of, the, of Israel. Israel's not going to actually come to Christ, come to the Messiah in large numbers until this period of the tribulation. They rejected their Messiah when he first came. And it's going to take this. It's going to take this. You talk about being in a pressure cooker. It's going to take the most intense pressure that anybody's ever had in the history of the world. And then at the end of that, they turn. 144,000 turn right away. They're the Jewish witnesses. You have two witnesses that, that many believe are Moses and Elijah. But in terms of large numbers, it doesn't happen until closer to the end. But that tribulation period is, is a period also of, of Israel's purification. And because of that purification, they will come to Christ. And then Christ comes back in what some call the great and terrible day of the Lord. And we don't, we don't think about that enough because we, we think of the meek and mild Jesus, the one that said, don't, don't, don't disallow the children to come to me. Let, let them come sit on my knee. The, the Jesus of love, the kindness and peace. On this day, though, on the day of the second coming, it's going to be a terrible, terrible day. There's going to be a slaughter on earth like no slaughter has ever existed before. You know, one of the things that's happened before is, is God has disciplined his people many, many times, but it's usually by another agent. He disciplined the northern kingdom of the Assyrians. He disciplined the southern kingdom of the Babylonians. He disciplined he disciplines people from time to time with tsunamis and with earthquakes and with volcanoes, with hurricanes. But, but you know, those are all indirect means, aren't they? God is using an intermediary to affect his judgment. Here, the meek and mild Jesus, with the sword of his mouth, slaughters, slaughters. Tens of thousands, hundreds of thousands, perhaps even millions of people on that plane. You don't want to, you want to know what God thinks about rebellion? You know, a lot of times we don't, we don't take it seriously enough. Because, see, we rebel, or we see other people rebel, and we see God do nothing about it right then. So we say he must not care. Well, he cares. On the great and terrible day of the Lord, which is the second coming. Now, don't confuse the two. They're two different events. The rapture is a movement from earth to heaven. The second coming is a movement from heaven to earth. Christ actually doesn't come to earth at the rapture. He, we meet him in the clouds. At the second coming, we already have our resurrection bodies. We've already been through the judgment seat of Christ. We come with him. I, I just wonder if the reason that all of that has to wait till that particular timing is we wouldn't be able to handle it in this body. Not Probably not even in an interim body. In order, to, in order to watch the wrath of God being poured out upon those rebellious folks, 
We, we may have to be in resurrection body. I don't know. I'm just speculating. But we will be, and we'll watch it. We will watch the victory of God. All, all the times you thought, why isn't God acting? All the times the prophet have asked, how long, O Lord, are you going to let this happen? How long, O Lord, are you going to get, let the wicked prosper and the righteous suffer? How long are you going to let that happen? Listen, it's going to come to an end. And all will be made right. And then, of course, there'll be what's, what's called a, a thousand-year millennium, if you believe that the Bible should be interpreted in a normal, plain, literal sense, which it should be. If you, if you, if you understand the Bible's words to mean what they say, then there's got to be a thousand-year perfect reign of Christ called the Millennial Kingdom, where Jesus will rule from earth from the Davidic throne in perfection, only, only in order to prove that perfection doesn't ensure a positive response. There is a, re- a revolution at the end of the Millennial Kingdom called the Gog and Magog Revolution. When Satan is loosed, Satan's bound here. When he's loosed here, he'll foment another revolution, and then Christ will come and wipe that revolution out. This present heaven and earth will be destroyed, and a new heaven and earth with a new Jerusalem will be created. I was asked the other night in the class, well, what happens to us while it's being destroyed? Well, I'm sure we're taking off. <laughs> there's, some place, there's some place that he takes us, and, and we probably watch that explosion. It'll be the biggest fireworks explosion you've ever seen. And then a new heavens and new earth, the permanent heavens and new earth are instituted, and, and so shall we ever be with the Lord, in a place of no more sorrow, no more pain, no more tears, no more death. The old things have passed away. Therefore, comfort one another with these words. You know, but it all starts with grace. God's riches at Christ's expense, that's where it starts. Otherwise, there is no comfort. Otherwise, there is no blessed hope. Otherwise, we, have, we don't have a prayer of behaving well enough to ever, to ever be a part of that. Looking for the blessed hope in the appearing of of the glory of our great God and Savior, Christ Jesus. Now, we could stop. We don't, we don't have time to do it tonight. We, we did it recently. Uh, we, we could stop now and, and talk about the deity of Christ, because the way this Greek structure is put together, this Greek sentence is put together in its structure, our, our great God and Savior, Christ Jesus, is all the same person. This is a verse that does speak to the deity of Christ here. But since we've recently studied that, let's, let's move on to verse 14. Who gave himself for us. For God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten Son. There is a sense in which the Father presented the Son. But there's another sense in which the Son presented himself. Remember when Abraham was taking Isaac up to the sacrifice? Isaac is not a young child at the time. Isaac's carrying the wood for his own... <laughs> The, 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 the worship service, and he's looking around, and who, who's the, uh, I ain't seen the lamb yet. <laughs> but yet he went willingly. Isaac was no Jesus. I'm not trying to imply that. Not even, not even in the same sentence or the same world, the same universe. But, but Jesus Christ went willingly. It wasn't like the Father had to pull him by the ear and say, no, you're going to do that. There was harmony within the Trinity. So that's why John will talk about the Father giving the Son. Here, Paul talks about the Son giving Himself, who gave Himself for us, that He might redeem us from every lawless deed and purify for Himself a people for His own possession, zealous for good deeds. If I can be blunt, Jesus Christ didn't save you for you to go on acting like you acted before you became a believer in Jesus Christ. We don't emphasize that very much because in Protestantism, in, in, in post-Reformation times, 
We stress salvation is by grace, through faith alone, in Christ alone, apart from works. And we've got to stress that apart from works thing, because if we don't, we run into people who've been to church all their life, and they think they're saved, and, and they're trying to do good works. My dad asked a person one time, what about, uh, you know, are you saved? He said, well, I'm, just, I'm trying to be good enough. You're trying to be good enough? No wonder you're, you're conflicted. No wonder you're under a lot of pressure, because nobody can be good enough who gave himself for us that he might redeem us from every lawless deed. Now, positionally, true, absolutely, but also experientially. God doesn't expect perfection from you, but he does expect loving obedience. Jesus says, if you love me, you'll obey me. Obedience is not a bad word. Obedience, for the thousandth time, is not legalism. <laughs> Again, one of my friends one time you know, was... Bad situation, and I just mentioned something about fornication. Oh, quit being so legalistic. Listen, fleeing fornication is not legalism. <laughs> fleeing fornication is love. Because if, if you love him, you're going to obey him. But we've studied that before. But look, there is a purpose to redeem us from every lawless deed, to purify for himself a people for his own possession. We belong to him. We don't belong to us. This business that you're the captain of your own ship, you can jettison that right now. You are not. We belong to someone else. We've been bought and paid for. And I'm glad that I do. I have no problem at all being called the servant of the Most High. I have no problem whatsoever being called a slave of Jesus Christ. Paul didn't, I don't, and I'm sure you don't either. Zealous for good deeds. Too many Christianity think work's a four-letter word, bad four-letter word. It's not. There is no work you can do to earn your salvation. Not at all. But... A certain behavior, which includes righteous deeds, is expected of you after salvation. In fact, that's one of the evaluations that will happen here at the judgment seat of Christ. You'll be evaluated for the deeds done in the body, whether good, agathos, or worthless, or bad, phallos. Probably better translated, worthless. Christ's intent in providing salvation for us was to provide us with an opportunity for eternal life, but also to buy our freedom from slavery to sin and wickedness. It was to purify a people for himself who desired to be holy as he is holy. So to summarize this section, verses 11 through 14, the grace of God should result in our present commitment to deny what he detests and to pursue what he values. We see God's grace in his past provision of salvation in Christ, and the prospect of Christ's future return at the rapture at a time when we will then be with him forever. Heavenly Father, we appreciate so much the concept of grace, Christ's riches at Christ's expense, God's riches at Christ's expense. We thank you for the unmerited favor that comes our way because of what Jesus Christ did on the cross. I thank you for the blessed hope uh, the, the anticipation that we have that one day you will return for your church. And whether we're already with you at that time or whether we're still on this earth, we, we, we anticipate that day when the church will be reunited, when we'll receive our resurrection bodies, when we stand before you in that solemn moment where you evaluate us and we look straight into your Son's everlasting eyes. We look forward to that moment. And Father, we look forward to the moment where he comes and, and writes all wrongs where he comes and destroys those who have been your enemies. We don't look forward to that with glee, Father, but we look forward to it in righteousness. And we pray 
We pray even now for the salvation of those who are in rebellion against yourself. We pray that we would be instruments that might be used of the Holy Spirit to lead others to you, understanding how terrible your wrath is, how long hell lasts for eternity. May we be bold in our own presentation of the gospel of Jesus Christ for your glory. Father, may we deny ungodliness and worldly desires. May we live sensibly, righteously, and godly in this present age. We'll ask it in Jesus' name. Amen.